phase is locked and ready to fire, sir. Illogical. Hello and welcome back to Federation Radio once again with your host Floyd. And uh, today we're going over Season 2's Episode 10, A Journey to Babel. Which is probably one of the more interesting early like Star Trek episodes because it sort of expands the lore of the Federation a little bit. We actually get to see some of the other Federation members and how it works internally. Which is something that later on we'll see lots and lots of because the Federation just keeps growing and introducing more species and we get to see more and more of its internal workings as the series goes on. However, this was the very first, like like we've seen before. Up until now, there's been a lot of Earth ships and confusing, not really certain what the law was. Now it's locked down. This is the Federation. This is how it works. It's almost a European Union type deal where like the federation has its overall rules but all the planets and species in the middle that are all a part of it have their own little autonomous things like the vulcans still have their own academies and the the andorians and tellarites still have their own things going on we learn in this one the tellarites are big into mining and seem to have their own economy so not everyone in the federation doesn't have an economy that seems to be just an earth thing and the Andorians, we don't learn a lot about the Andorians actually in this. We Obviously we get to meet them and we get to see that they're really cool. Like I personally really like the Andorians. They're blue. I don't know if it's really discussed much in this episode, but they are blue. They have antenna and like really white hair. And they're meant to be almost like ice slugs, I think is how they're described later on. They're from a very icy world underground, so they're blue. Then you've got the Tellarites, which are like these pigmen is the best way to describe them. Very hairy pigmen, they've only got like two or three fingers, it looks more like a hoof. Well, it's sort of a humanoid hand, but it's meant to like resemble a hoof of like a, 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 um, a pig or something, the way they look, and they have these weird, in this episode in particular, really weird like plasticky masks that you can kind of see the actor's eyes behind, but it almost looks like something, you know, that a kid would buy for like a Halloween costume. The mask's really weird, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure what they were going for here. I mean, I get what they were going for, because we, we do see the Tellarites again in future, and spoilers, the prosthetics for Tellarites get much, much better. They become a much better looking species as the series goes on, but we get the basic concept. Like, we get the idea of what they're about, what they do, and how they work. Now, the thing in this episode that we learn is that Tellarites love to argue. They're, they just love arguing. It's their whole thing. They love to debate. And the Vulcans... <laughs> the way that they are, are so arrogant in their I am always logical and everything I say is logical and everything that you, time you disagree with me, then you are being illogical. Like, that real, it's almost arrogance that they just have and it exudes from them. The same thing you kind of see from Spock a lot of the time when he's banging heads with McCoy and the other crew members, but you see it politically here where this is how the Vulcans are. Like, if it wasn't for the humans being this diplomatic force in the middle, Vulcans would absolutely be at war with probably the Andorians and the Tellarites, out of insulting them in some way. And, spoilers, in the future series Enterprise, which is technically a prequel, you'll actually see a little bit of that. We go a bit more into the Alpha Quadrant politics before the Federation in that show. But anyway, in this episode, it's called Journey to Babel. So on Babel, which is apparently a fairly neutral system, there is a big conference that is being held where a bunch of ambassadors from a bunch of different species in the Federation, they don't really say it here, but the founding members of the Federation are there, which are, like I said, the Andorians, the Tellarites, the humans, and the Vulcans. And they're all here 
to go over the planet Corridan, which is asking for entry into the Federation, and this is like a conference to discuss and vote on whether it will be given entrance. Now, we don't get to see the conference because the whole story of this episode takes place on the ship, but it makes sense that the Enterprise, like the Federation's flagship, supposedly the safest and most powerful ship in the fleet, is the one that is carrying all these very important people to this planet. Now, we get to see, it's one of the first, um, it's actually an episode that has quite a few firsts, but we get to see a lot of, like, dress uniforms. This is something you'll see a lot later on in a lot of these more ambassadorial diplomatic episodes, because there are quite a few of these throughout Star Trek, where they get the dress uniforms out. Now, I think we've seen them before, come to think of it. We might have seen an early version of the dress uniforms during the Spock trial in Season 1, but they were a little bit different to what they're wearing now. What they're wearing now more closely resembles what we'll see in the future. I mean, obviously the uniforms do make a change after the original series, but the next series tries to sort of do similar to this series. And this is more of a template, as far as I can tell, of like what they'll do in the future. So that's cool. Goddamn computer alerts. Uh, so every, you know, every military, every branch like this, there's always dress uniforms that all of them will comment on hating. They itch and they're annoying and they're hard to move in. And I don't think I've ever seen anybody from any military that actually liked their dress uniform and thought it was a good thing and comfortable to wear. But, you know, that just makes sense. It's the equivalent of throwing on a suit in the military. But, um, so throughout this episode... We see a lot of tension, like straight away we have Sarek coming aboard, who is the ambassador for the Vulcans. But more than that, he is also the father of Spock, which is a really nice reveal, because like at first it's this big thing, like the Tellarites and the Endurians are on board, and Spock and McCoy are sort of, oh sorry, McCoy and Kirk are complaining about the dress uniforms and talking about just one more set of ambassadors to come aboard, it's just the Vulcans now, and then we can get to Babel. And Spock's behind them, throwing out his sarcastic Vulcan comments. And we see, they call it an honor guard, which I suppose is just like the security and stuff all line up and they make it all very ritualistic, the way they stand in their dress uniforms, almost saluting, ready for Sarek to come aboard. It's all very proper, and it's all very, you know, typical politics stuff. But Sarek comes aboard, and we very quickly see Sarek has a wife who is human, and in this one she's quite an old lady, I don't actually remember her name. I think it was Anna or something. I'll, I'll look it up. It'll come up again in future. But um, this woman, at first I wasn't sure. But due to some of the context in this episode, I think this woman actually is Spock's mother. I didn't actually remember that she was in the show because, again, spoilers, she's going to die at some point and Sarek is going to remarry with another human woman. And that's the one I usually think of when I think of Sarek's wife. But... No, I forgot that in the original series it actually is just Spock's mother. It is a human woman who has married, remember, a full-blooded Vulcan, because Spock is half. He acts the part of a Vulcan, and he leans into that side of himself more than he does his human ever, but he is half-human. But, you know, we get to see his father figure, like the man who, as we learn through the episode, he has had a big argument with, and they sort of don't talk to each other anymore. Apparently they haven't seen each other for four years, and that's because... His father, Sarek, disagrees with Spock's joining Starfleet. He thinks he should have joined the Vulcan Science Academy and followed in Sarek's footsteps. And he's pretty disappointed that he didn't. He doesn't like that he joined Starfleet. The mother seems to be a bit more neutral. She just wants her son to visit. She's 
you know, she understands her husband's pain and all this, but she also just loves her son and wants him to be happy. So she's a human. She's more emotional, less bogged down in her own logic, the way that the son and the father are. They're very stubborn. Now, they come aboard, and throughout this episode, we learn that this... I, I sort of said this before, but Corridan is a planet that, again, we don't get to see, but it's going to be joining the Federation, most likely. Now, what we learn about Corridan and why this is so kind of being argued over is that Corridan is really, really rich in dilithium crystals, which are the crystals that are used, if you don't know, to power all of the starships and basically all of the high-level technology that Starfleet uses and that most of the species in the Federation and even outside the Federation use. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head if anyone doesn't. There are some species that do different things, like we haven't really gone over Romulans much yet, but they famously don't use dilithium tries. They have their own different star systems, but anyway... That's sort of off-topic, but like almost every known species in this galaxy that we'll meet throughout Star Trek relies on dilithium crystals. So a planet being super rich with them, and not just super rich with them, but also very small population. Because they make clear like there's more dilithium crystals than there are people on the planet. It is not possible for the Corridans to be able to mine it all and manage it all effectively. And it's wanted by lots of people. So the Vulcans favor Corridan joining the Federation because they wish to protect them, because they see this as, you know, these people could very easily be exploited by lots of bad actors in the galaxy who want those dilithium crystals. And the Tellarites don't want them to enter the Federation because basically the Tellarites want to mine their planet and they want to get a really good deal. They want to make nice contracts for the mining, make lots of money, but they don't want to have to do it through Federation law, which we have to imagine is going to be much more fair and much more regulated and probably less profitable. So they're not so into it. The Andorians, we don't get a lot of. They almost seem like a bit of a neutral party, kind of in the way humanity is, where they're there. They kind of see both sides and they're sort of weighing their options, but I feel like we don't get a direct answer, but I feel like the Andorians are sort of going to lean towards, yeah, let them in. Having more dilithium crystal sources within the Federation could only benefit them. They don't really speak against or for it, though. They're just kind of there because they're a founding member and they get a vote. We also, I found it interesting that we don't get to meet whoever the human ambassador is. Because one thing that we'll see going forward a lot in Star Trek is the Federation and Starfleet are separate. Starfleet is an arm of the Federation, but it is not the Federation. It doesn't always have the authority to speak for them. And quite often we actually get ambassadors and people from the Federation, like actual politicians, to come in. For the same reason that you wouldn't send a general to negotiate peace, you would send in soldiers to protect the government-appointed like diplomat or ambassador to discuss peace. That's kind of what Starfleet is for. And it's interesting that in this episode we don't really get to meet who's representing humanity at this conference, which I found a bit weird. Like, I would have liked to have seen some high-ranking human maybe even the president of Earth, or like something like that. As we know, they exist. They are out there. They're just in this episode. They don't come up. I don't know if they're trying to imply that, like, Kirk is speaking for humanity, but I don't know. I kind of got the feeling through the episode Kirk was just trying to keep everyone calm. He was agreeing with the Vulcans that, like, let's let's not debate on the ship. Save it for the conference. There's no point in upping the tension. Let's just get there peacefully. So I don't feel like he was really taking sides. He just sort of wanted everything to go smoothly. Now... Throughout this episode, things start to sort of fall apart a little bit. Like, straight away, Sarek is offered a tour of the ship by the first officer, which is, of course, Spock. And Sarek just kind of rudely doesn't look at Spock, looks at the captain and says, I thank you for your generosity, but I would prefer a different tour guide. 
and that's the, like the first hint of tension now mind you at this point kirk remember Sarek has just come aboard kirk doesn't actually know that Sarek is spock's father which i don't know i found that interesting i would think because Sarek is a pretty maybe at this point they hadn't really written his character very much background yet but later on we know Sarek is pretty famous like throughout the federation a lot of people know Sarek. he's a very big ambassador that has been around for quite a while like we learn in this he's about 104 so like he's not young He's been around a while. He's young for a Vulcan, but like he has a very long reputation. Lots of species in the Federation know and respect him. Or at the very least, even if they don't agree with him, they respect his ability to negotiate. He's a good negotiator. So I find it a little strange that Kirk wasn't aware that Sarek was Spock's dad. Also, the fact that Kirk, I am have to imagine, has access to all of the personnel records of everyone that works aboard. So surely he gets a basic, you know... Spock from the planet Vulcan, you know, son of Sarek, or whatever. Surely that's in the records, at the very least, who the fathers are. But anyway, you know, so that goes on, and it's a bit awkward, and then Kirk says to Spock, sort of in front of Sarek, he says, Spock, while we're in orbit of Vulcan, would you like to take this opportunity to visit your parents, or have some shore leave, or anything like that? And there's a real kind of awkward moment where, like, Sarek kind of looks to the side, and almost rolls his eyes but of course a Vulcan wouldn't do that so he <clears throat> not quite rolls his eyes but basically does and Spock just kind of does that raise eyebrow sarcasm that he does and goes well Captain Sarek is my father these are my parents <laughs> and there's kind of a even McCoy's his eyes go wide and Kirk's like oh I see. Everyone's a little bit awkward now because of the like tension and the whole Sarek not really wanting to look at him thing. And it's like, oh, so you don't talk to your father then, okay? But at the same time, they all have to be professional because Sarek is an ambassador regardless of his personal status with his first officer. <laughs> Which I, I enjoyed that. I think it was really well played out. And it was a really good showing of Vulcans because Vulcans are, I have to imagine, really hard to write for because you can't just write a tense or emotional scene with a Vulcan. Because they're Vulcans. They don't have emotion. Well, they do, but they suppress them. So, like, I have to imagine writing a scene and trying to add tension or humor like that to a scene with Vulcans is really difficult. But they did a pretty good job. Like, it, it actually had me laughing because it was pretty funny. Now, in the episode, like I said, we get to see the Tellarites, and immediately Tellarite Ambassador Garv has a go at Sarek once they're in the, like, I don't know what you call it, it's like a galley or dining room type thing where everyone's like having snacks, I guess, while they're traveling to Babel. And we get to find out that Garv is like going at Sarek, like, what are you going to vote for? And Sarek very calmly just says, mm -hmm, save it for the conference, I don't see why we should discuss this now, that would be illogical. And he gets annoyed and eventually Kirk sort of breaks them up before, you know, because Garv's about to throw fists, he's, he's ready to go, Sarek, like he's frustrated, he's done with his sarcasm. And Kirk gets between, he sort of throws Garv back and says, Alright, I agree with Sarek, let's just leave this for the conference, please. Now later that day, Kirk is in his room, in his quarters. He's got like no shirt on, so I have to presume he was either asleep or like showering or something. We don't really know, but he gets a call from security. Security has just found Ambassador Garv dead. Now, this is a pretty big deal. Like the founding members of the Federation are on board, they each have an ambassador, and one of the ambassadors just died before a vote after being seen arguing with a Vulcan ambassador. So immediately, you know, things start being thrown around. Like, this is not great. Something has gone wrong here. And Sarek is acting strange. Sarek 
is sort of disappearing and he's going off to meditate in his own and he's no one can confirm where he was his wife says that he was there when garth was well, garth was killed and they're suspecting i should say they're suspecting the vulcans because not just the argument from the context but also because spock looks at him sees how garth died and said this is very similar to a vulcan execution method and he says yes my father was seen arguing and he does have the strength to kill if he had reason he does say, I don't know what his reason would be, and it seems illogical, but if he had reason, yes, he is very physically capable of killing efficiently, just like this. And so, as awkward as it is, you know, Kirk and Spock have to go visit Sarek, at which point they meet the wife, which is, again, Spock's mother, and they sort of bring up the fact that Garv was just killed, and unfortunately, your husband, Sarek, is the main suspect. No one could confirm where he was, and then he collapses. And it's not collapsing out of shock like at first he's like oh i was just off meditating everything is fine and he goes to sit on his chair very confidently and then the facade just falls apart and he collapses and he starts having we sort of get the equivalent of a heart attack is the description we're given by mccoy when he starts looking at him but he says you know i'm not as knowledgeable about vulcan anatomy as i'd like to be so i'm going to need to do some more looking over of him in the med bay but my preliminary exam tells me that this is the equivalent of a heart attack and we find out that Sarek's not well. He has some real issues. He is very sick. And he's been hiding this from his wife, who is absolutely shocked. She's very emotional about it. And Sarek just quite plainly in the Sarek way says, well, telling you would have accomplished nothing and it would have just upset you. So it seemed illogical. <laughs> so he just kept it to himself. But, you know, I kind of get and it's It's fine. But it, it's funny to see this like... Spock's mother is just getting more and more flustered as the episode goes because her husband is being accused of murder. Now her husband is sick and has been sick for a while and hasn't informed her. She just wants her son and her husband to talk and everything's just going wrong for this poor woman in her room who was just near on having an emotional breakdown. Now, not long after this scene, we see Kirk in a hallway and he's fighting an Endorian who just sort of comes out of a... Not a court, not an alleyway, or what would I put it? He comes out of a doorway, is the better way. So, like, he's walking down the hall, Kirk, and this blue Andorian just sort of jumps out from behind. Now, we know from earlier, because we saw the Andorian ambassador during the argument between Sarek and Garv, this is not the ambassador. This is one of his servants. This is one of just the Andorian attendees that are with him. And he just lunges at Kirk, and he has a knife, which is kind of funny. Like, you don't often actually see melee weapons being used outside of, well, Klingons, which I thought was cool. So he's got a knife, and he, you know, Kirk and him have a good fight. Kirk throws him around, and they're beating each other in the face, and they're getting in real close, and then Kirk gets stabbed in the back, and it punctures his lung, as McCoy says later. But um, he still manages to disarm the Endorian and knock him out, and before Kirk passes out from the blood loss and the shock of what's just happened to him, he manages to get to the comm and tell Spock where he is and that he's just been attacked and says to alert medical he's been stabbed. And then he just kind of passes out like mid-sentence and Spock actually sounds worried. And he's like, security to there. And, you know, next thing we see, Spock is... Oh, sorry, next thing we see, we're in the med bay. The prisoner, the Andorian that stabbed him, is now in the holding cell with security. And Kirk has this big bandage wrapped all around his chest and he's topless because, as McCoy says, you were stabbed, your lung was punctured. If it had been a little bit to the left, he would have hit your heart. Now, this is confusing to everyone because up until now like i said it was Sarek obviously murdered garv 
well, at least a, a Vulcan did, and we suspect it was Serik. Now the Andorians are getting angry. So you've got a dead Talarite, an Andorian attacking a human captain, and a Vulcan being suspicion of killing a Talarite. So everything's gone topsy-turvy. We haven't even reached the conference yet, and already all these species are at each other's throats, and no one knows what's happening. And then to top it off, we get word from Chekhov, who calls to say, hey, there's an alien ship not far from us, or as he says, a vessel, because he's supposed to be so damn Russian that he can't say the W, apparently, or say the V, so every V becomes a W, so it's a vessel. Which, I just, I love that, because I don't actually think the actor is Russian. I'm pretty sure he's putting that on, although I could be wrong. I, I could be wrong. I don't actually know where the actor's from, but, like, I'm pretty sure that's a fake Russian accent, which just makes it so much funnier to me. But, um, he's talking about a vessel that is flying just outside of phaser range, which I've never really questioned how far a phaser's range is, and that was kind of interesting for me. I'd like to know what that was, but anyway, it doesn't really matter. There's a vessel, it's small, it's just outside of phaser range, and it's following. And he confirms, with Uhura sort of tapping in at this point as well through the comm to say, you know, Federation channels confirm that is not a Starfleet ship or a Federation ship. As far as they're aware, there shouldn't be any other vessels in the area. So this ship is not Federation, and it's not Starfleet, and it's following. It's refusing to tell anyone why it's following, and it won't respond to communications. And the sensors don't seem to be able to penetrate it. So we've got a dead ambassador, another very sick ambassador and a Dorian in the brig, and a ship outside that is following. And I'm just like, man, this episode is great. They were really upping the tension, they're getting everyone going, and Spock's pointing out, like, this is very dangerous. This could literally break the Federation apart. We're at a point where multiple species within the Federation could go to war with each other if these lights are seen as big enough. Now, one thing I do want to say about this episode that I kind of wish they'd done was... Where was Garv second in command? Where was another ambassador from the Tellarites? Like, I feel like the Tellarites really dropped off after Garv died and they stopped being included and it became more about the Andorians and the Vulcans. Which is a little disappointing to me because I really like the Tellarites. I would have liked to have seen another very angry Tellarite, like, in the room. Like, what are we doing about my dead ambassador? Like, pointing the finger at the Vulcans and actually being aggressive. You know, we do get the Andorian ambassador who comes down to the brig and sort of says, hey... You know, this guy is not acting on my word. I'll show you all my communications if that helps. He says, I don't actually know this man. So far, he has served me well. He's been a perfectly good attendee, but I I don't know him very well. He only joined my crew not very long ago. So, you know, we get a bit of a... And it's pretty believable. Like, he doesn't seem like he's lying. Even as a viewer, like, it didn't feel like he was trying to lie. There was no real tension there. Like, it even felt like Kirk and Spock kind of believed him straight away. So, like, the Andorians aren't necessarily the ones that are having the finger pointed at them, but they are involved, and no one really gets why. Now, this goes on for a while, and we find out that, well, we find out Serik is very ill, he needs to be treated. And the only way to treat him, as we learn, is he needs a blood transfusion, because he has some kind of sickness that's causing problems in his blood. Now, apparently, there is a medicine that is experimental that Spock has pulled up from these records and said, this could be used. McCoy says, I don't know if this could be used. In Sarek's current condition, he's pretty weak. This drug you're talking about is experimental, and even if it does work on Vulcans, it weakens the liver and some of the other internal organs, and in his condition, that would probably kill him. I couldn't do that to him. And then they say, what we need is a transfusion, but as they say, he has, they don't have enough stocks of Vulcan blood on board to start with, so they don't have what they need to do it, and they 
they do sort of say like Spock has the same blood we could use his blood but as McCoy says giving him enough blood from you could kill you it would lower you to a level of health that is not advisable and at this point Captain Kirk remember has also been stabbed he is also in the in infirmary he's not doing well he's alive he's in no real danger of dying but as McCoy says if you don't stop and rest for a while you are going to bleed out you're going to start bleeding again you need to rest and well, yeah, that leaves us in an awkward position where the only man that can save Sarek is Spock with a blood transfusion, except he can't do that because he is a logical Vulcan that has to stick to his, you know, rules and regulations because that's the only logical thing that matters to him. And the rules state that when the captain is incapacitated, the first officer must command. And as he says, logically, right now, this incident could lead to interplanetary war between multiple species. If he was to go unconscious right now to give a blood transfusion to save one man and risk war, that would be illogical. And, you know, that's a hard choice and he's not wrong. And in a lot of ways, I almost envy the Vulcans that because he could have done that. And Sarek would have 100% forgiven him and understood the Vulcans wouldn't have argued anything else could have been done because that is the logical move. But damn, that's cold. Like he's going to let his dad die so that he can possibly stop wars. Like, I get it. Greater good and all that. Like, what he's doing does make an ounce of sense and probably is the right option, but damn, it's cold. But, now, Kirk comes up with an idea here after Spock is unconscious. Sorry, not unconscious, after Spock has left because he's gone to his um, quarters, which we'll get a cool scene with his mother in a minute, but Kirk comes up with an idea where he says, hey, McCoy, could you fix me up enough just to get me to the bridge temporarily? Because he says, you can't perform the surgery while Sarek is... Ah, sorry. While you can't perform the surgery until Spock stops being on duty so that he can give a transfusion. You cannot, and he will not step off his duties until I am either back on my feet to replace him or someone else that is capable can. Now, he refuses to allow um, Scotty to take over the ship temporarily while he does the transfusion because he says that would be using my privilege as an officer for personal gain that is not within my duties now kirk comes up with the idea that hey you need to patch me up you need to give me something so i can just stand up for a while i'm going to walk on the bridge look like i'm healed and i'm going to order him to come to medbay once i take over and once he leaves the bridge i will call scotty to the bridge to take over so that i can rest McCoy, you know, at first he argues and says, you shouldn't be standing, you shouldn't be walking, it's bad for you, and, he just, and then he sort of shakes his head and says, all right, if you do that, that'll fit what I need. Now, after that happens, we actually get a really, it's a really nice scene, I really like it, where Spock's mother comes to his quarters to visit Spock. And they have this nice conversation about how, you know, when he was a boy, he was apparently bullied by the other Vulcan kids, because they called him a half-breed, or that he wasn't truly Vulcan, and she says that, you know, she saw the human side of him crying at that point. And he sort of looks awkward about this, like he looks away, like pretends it's not real, and says, no, I am a Vulcan, and that is illogical, it doesn't matter. And she says, you're also part human, and don't look at me like that's a dirty word. I am your mother, and I am human. Some part of me is in you. And that... I kind of like that because it's almost the like motherly guilt trip that only mothers can do, but it's also true. Like he is part human, 
She's like, stop acting like a Vulcan for one second and recognize that your father is dying. And he sort of looks away and she actually slaps him at one point because she says, please, you have to do what you can for your father. Do it for my sake. And he says, I can't. I have my duties. What would Sarek think? What would my father think of me if I was to give up my duties and risk interplanetary war to save him? That would be illogical and it would be disappointing to him. And that's a really interesting moment where you sort of realize that He's not really being cold. In a weird way, he is a son just like every other son that wants his dad to be proud of him. And in a weird twist of the story, doing what would make his father proud will also lead to his father's death, which the human part of him is upset about. So it's a weird, like, this is what I mean, like, it's really hard to write a Vulcan, but a half Vulcan like this in this situation is amazing. This is really good, deep character building stuff here. Now... She freaks out. She gets really upset and she just slaps him and says, I can't believe you would do this and walks out. And as she walks out, there's a moment where like the door closes behind her and Spock sort of, there's an instant where he like steps towards the door and holds his hand up like he's about to tell her to stop and come back. Which I think is meant to be like his human side. That is like he is suppressing his emotions like a good Vulcan. But there is also a part of him that wants to just accept what she's saying and go save his dad. Which is a very human moment, which he would be very insulted to hear, but that is true, and it's a part of him. But, you know, like I said, Kirk has his own plan. Kirk's plan works, like, not long after this, Spock's back on the bridge. Kirk walks in with his shirt back on, the bandage is under there, but he says he's fine. He's acting all confident and calm, he's not sweating, he doesn't look ill, and he just says, Spock, report to Medbay, I'll take the bridge from here. At first, Spock says, are you okay? And he says, are you refusing my order? And Spock just sort of nods at him and walks towards the medbay. Now, he goes, well, sorry, Kirk goes to call Scotty to the bridge at this point. But um, instead, the alien ship, remember, that was following them, starts shooting at the ship at this point. Which means he has to say, belay that, keep Scotty in engineering, because, you know, we're under attack. Having our chief engineer where he's most needed and most useful right now is good. Plus, he's the captain and, you know, Kirk. He would rather die in the captain's chair protecting his crew than go to medbay and let someone else do it. So, he sits there and he's obviously in pain. Like, at this point, he's the facade's gone. He's not faking it. Like, he's sweating. He's probably reopened his wound. Like, he is not doing well, but he's refusing to leave his post. Which, you know, good on him. He's a soldier. Now, the ship starts attacking. And it's really confusing. Now, we get from Uhura at this point... Someone on board the ship is communicating with that ship. And he's like, what's going on? And he immediately calls security and says, I need you to check the prisoner. Because Ohura manages to determine that someone on board the ship is also in the brig. It's coming from the brig. Whoever's transmitting to them, it's coming from the brig. So they send security in, and we see yet another first. Like I said, this episode has quite a few firsts. We get to see a... um. Sorry, what do you call it? The, um... Oh, god damn it. What's... Stun. We get to see the first stun setting. Because security goes in, they start checking the Andorian over, looking for a physical transmitter. And they get near his head. They go to check his hair. And as the hand touches the hair, the prisoner freaks out. He punches one of them and tries to, like, knock him out and fight the other one. And then we see a bright blue blast. And he goes to the ground. And then security finds, because he fell to the ground, and when he fell, his antenna hit the ground, which then snapped off, showing that, yeah, the antenna's fake, but inside this fake antenna was a little metal transmitter, which, I gotta be real, 
just look like a lithium battery. It just looked like one of those little flat lithium batteries that you like put in watches and a lot of stuff like that. I'm pretty sure that's the prop that they used, but that's fine. It, it worked for what they needed. Now they find that, and then Kirk says, bring that prisoner to the bridge for me. You know, and security says, we have to stun him, we'll bring him up now. Now I thought that was cool, because again, we've talked about phases before. Phases have a few settings. Ordinarily, they have stun setting, which is like the standard Federation setting. And it's also what sets the Federation apart, because everyone else's disruptors and phases don't usually have a stun setting. They're all about killing. The Federation are unique, and they like to let people live. Now, up until now, we've had setting one, which was like low power, and we've had numbered settings. This was the first time... Sorry, just threw my pen by accident. Uh, this was the first time I think we ever saw a stun setting used and it was cool i enjoyed that little bit of like yes stun settings exist and we're going to see them going forward now now at this point kirk doesn't know what to do remember mccoy is in the middle of a surgery right now we see spock is unconscious sarek is unconscious there's little like fluid tubes between them so what they've decided to do is to give spock the drug that i was talking about earlier that was too dangerous to give to sarek because that would create the cells in, um, what do you call it, in the Vulcan blood that Spock has. Sorry, my brain, I don't know why, I just, my brain is fried today. I just can't seem to string sentences together anymore. But um, Spock is taking that drug that allows his blood to be filtered and to have whatever it is that they need to help Sarek. And that way, it will damage Spock's body a little bit, but it's less dangerous to him. He's just going to have some damage, he's not going to die. And that allows him to have the blood required for Sarek, which is then being transfused from Spock to Sarek, which is nice, you know. But remember, they're under attack. The ship is being shot by phases right now. The ship is shaking. Energy systems are going on and off. We hear McCoy tell Nurse Chapel quickly, tell engineering, we need medical, uh, medical emergency clearance. What does he say? Medical emergency, we need all our systems put on priority. That's it. Now, unfortunately, we don't actually get to really see much from Scotty in this episode. Like, we hear about him, and we know he's doing things because he's getting orders, but uh, we don't get to hear his response or anything. Like, at that point, the lights in Medbay turn back on immediately after that message is conveyed. So, like, obviously, engineering's doing its job. And, like, yeah, mid-battle, we're doing a surgery on an anatomy that McCoy admits he doesn't know a lot about. He knows what's in there, and he knows all the theory, but he said that's very different to having practical experience and doing a surgery on these people. So he's he's pretty confident, but he doesn't really know what he's doing, and they're in a combat situation, which makes it even more stressful. Now on the bridge, the prisoner is brought up, and Kirk tries to ask the prisoner, like, what's going on? Why were you transmitting to this ship? What is this ship? Who are you? What is going on? And he just sort of says, that's a lot of speculation, Captain. I don't know what you're talking about. I haven't done anything wrong. I don't know who that ship is. And he's just being very, like, just not cooperative at all. Now, Kirk comes up with the idea, and I kind of like, because they try shooting at this ship a few times, and they keep missing, because this ship is just too fast, and it's too small, and it just keeps dodging all their shots. And it seems to have power, like, in its phases, equivalent to theirs, so it's actually able to damage the Enterprise, even though it's, it kind of looks like a, like, satellite thing it's got like a ring around it and it's like a tall structure to me it reminded me of like a satellite or a small space station and more than a ship but it was moving very fast so it's buzzing around it's firing the ship and kirk comes up with the idea that hey turn the ship off he basically turns off almost all systems 
and allows the ship to just drift, except weapons. He leaves the weapons open and he tells Chekhov to ready the weapons and aim manually. And they're waiting, and they're waiting, and the ship starts getting closer. It's almost like the probe probably thinks that he's damaged the ship, because he's hit them a few times. The probe, the, the small alien vessel, I should say, or the small alien vessel. It's coming closer, probably thinking that it's knocked out all their systems, so it's coming closer, thinking, yeah, let's let's observe the damage, what's going on, and it gets real close, and then Kirk says, fire, and they fire phase, which is cool. I like that. That's a bit of a lure. Like, they lured him in by lowering the power, making it look like they were damaged, and then fired on him in a surprise action, and it works. Blows up the ship. Well, it doesn't blow it up. It breaks the ship into a few pieces, but it's still mostly intact, but it's disabled. Now, at that point... He, Kirk turns and says to the prisoner, I think that ship's about to be taken prisoner, and I guess we'll get our answers from there. And then the ship explodes. Not the Enterprise, of course. The, the other ship itself destructs, and the prisoner just sort of laughs and says, Ah, oh, this was always a one-sided, a one-way mission for them. Their orders were to self-destruct if they were to fail. And then he sort of looks at Kirk and says, And my orders were to self-destruct in a sense as well. I have slow-acting poison in my system, and I should last about ten more minutes. And I'm not telling you anything. And then they start dragging him off the bridge as Kirk's rapidly saying, like, get him to medbay now. And then the Hindorian kind of turns and says, I guess I miscalculated. And then he just literally falls dead, which such a 1960s moment, the way he just, just like head down, just one breath out. Obviously, just the actor just went limp, but they're like, he's dead. No practical effects, no, like, foaming of the mouth, no eyes roll. He just closes his eyes and, ugh, he's dead now. <laughs> I liked it, though. It worked. So they're all a bit confused, but not long afterwards, we get sort of an aftermath where, like, they're all sitting around a desk and they've got, well, sorry, they're all in the med bay, sort of, in a circle, and they've got all the officers there and they're all talking because, of, remember, Kirk is nearly dead here. He's bleeding. He's in trouble. Like, McCoy has fixed him up, but he's like, you will rest now. And he's got Vulcans over there, he's got Sarek and Spock who are on the beds, and he's like, you two will stay where you are, you will stay where you are. And at this point, we've kind of got McCoy is basically in charge of the ship now, because everyone of authority is now under his medical supervision. And in the aftermath, we find out that, yeah, they were going over who it was. Spock confirms before he was unconscious for his surgery, he made a discovery, but because he was knocked unconscious for the surgery, we didn't get to hear what it was. And he confirms what they've already found out. It was the Orion Traders. Now, Orion, I don't know if they've actually come up yet. They were mentioned, if you remember, in the pilot episode. This is why I was so weirded out by it, was uh, Captain Pike actually says, maybe I'll join the Orion Traders, which is weird. I think at that point they didn't know what Orions were. But Orions are basically pirates. They're basically a syndicate, sort of like... They're the criminals of this universe. They are the organized criminals. Because they say, what would be the motivation of all this? And they basically point out, for the Orions, it's obvious. Corridan, lots of profit for them. They could come in and sneakily, you know, set up a few things using force to steal a bunch of dilithium crystals. They could raid the cargo ships coming to and from. If they started an interplanetary war between Federation members, they would then be able to use that smuggled and stolen dilithium to sell to the highest bidder during this war. So basically for them, war between these species would be very profitable, so it makes perfect sense that these pirates would want to cause a war. Yeah, and that was basically the end of it, because that Andorian wasn't a real Andorian. Like I said, he was prosthetics and paint and all that stuff to look like one. 
So it was actually just an Orion free trade. Which, you know, that's fine. I like the Orions, they're cool. I'm sort of disappointed we didn't get to see them directly here, like in their actual form, because I really like the green skin that they have. Especially when they're with Endorians, because the blue skin and the green skin really, like, play off each other really well. Later on, we'll get a lot of, like, the Endorians call humans pink skins, and we call them blue skins, and they both call the Orions green skins, and it's this weird, like, thing between them, but I always liked it. And the colour coordination on screen of the green, blue, and the pink, like, it looks really good, I really enjoy it. But anyway, so, that's basically the episode, like, we get a nice little moment at the end, where we get a sort of bonding moment between Spock and Zarek, over the weirdest thing, because... Spock's mother says to Sarek, are you going to thank your son for what he did for you? And Sarek just says, well, he just did what is logically within his duties to do. So there is nothing to thank. You do not thank logic. And they sort of turn to Spock, and Spock's just like nodding his head, and the mother goes, oh, I'm so sick of all of you and your logic. <laughs> Why can't you just admit your son did a nice thing for you? And just tell him that you care about him. And then Spock, and Spock sort of turns to Sarek from his bed and says, She's very very illogical and emotional, isn't she? And Sarek sort of looks at him with the one eyebrow raised, the same thing Spock always does, and goes, Indeed. And Spock says, Why did you marry such an illogical woman? And he sort of looks at her and he smiles, and Sarek says, At the time, it seemed quite logical. And it's this, like, it's nice. It really ties up, like, you know, they didn't fully get forgiveness, but they do have a mutual respect for each other, and in that moment you kind of see, like, yeah, they don't hate each other. They are just Vulcans, and this is their weird way of showing their bonding. And I love it. Vulcans are a very fun people when they're in the episodes, because they're just so different. Every other alien species is usually a really over-the-top version of something. Like, the Klingons at this point in the original series are kind of like Mongol conquerors. They come and they conquer, and they're all about anger and honour. You know, the humans are all about diplomacy and trying to be nice, and they're very emotional. The Tellarites are very, like, aggressive traders. you got the Orions that are just the scum of the universe. you got all these different people and cultures. But then you've got Vulcans that are this weird, we're not emotional, we don't believe in arrogance, but we are kind of arrogant people. Like, I don't know. I don't know how to describe Vulcans. They're just a very strange race. They're very unique to Star Trek, like... All the other species, I could point to other sci-fi examples of, yeah, these people are Vulcan, are, are Tellarite-like, or these people are Orion-like, these people are Klingon-like. But I can't think of another species in any other sci-fi that is Vulcan-like. They are very, very unique. And I think that makes them really interesting. But anyway, so I wanted to point out there's a couple little things in this episode. Like We got the very first uh, well, proper Vulcan salute, because as Sarek was coming aboard... McCoy says to Spock, what was that Vulcan salute again? And he does the, you know, the typical middle fingers being spread with your two fingers to the side, you know, the Vulcan salute, the live long and prosper hand symbol. And McCoy tries to do it. He says, I don't know what hurts more, this dress uniform or this hand. Now, I remember this hurting. I remember as a kid trying to do the Vulcan salute and it actually hurting my hand. But at this point, I think I've just sort of half-heartedly done it because I've watched Star Trek for so long that I can just do it with both hands and it doesn't feel like I'm stretching anything, it doesn't hurt, you know, I don't know, but I do recall it hurting, so I don't think it's a natural movement, they probably just tried to come up with a weird hand symbol that isn't quite human, or doesn't feel right, I don't know, I don't know what the thought process behind why they came up with it was, but I liked it. Now I think 
Now, the reason I say it's the first proper Vulcan uh, salute is because I think in the past we've seen Vulcans do this. Like, mostly Spock. I believe he has done the, like, live long and prosper thing with the hand. But it's never been directly, like, called out as a Vulcan thing. For all you knew, this was just a Spock thing. This is just something Spock does. But at that point, that was clearly putting into words that, yeah, this is not just a Spock thing. This is a Vulcan thing. This is a proper Vulcan salute. So that was sort of solidifying in the universe that, yeah, this is a Vulcan thing. And, you know, because it is a Vulcan thing, Vulcan characters other than Spock in the future are going to use this again and again and again. But also there was one other thing that I thought was kind of interesting. Well, two. One was when they were in the brig, or in the engineer, I don't remember where they were. There was a point in the episode where Kirk was somewhere in the ship and Uhura called him. And usually it's just kind of like a communication thing on the wall where they just sort of press a button and they're on the comms. It's kind of like an intercom through the ship. But um, this one, he pressed the button and they actually 3D rendered a um, a like video call of Uhura onto the little screen. Now, it's not that impressive. By modern standards, it was kind of jarring. Like, I could probably do that. But, like, it was cool because it's the first time they've done that. Like, in the past, we've only ever seen the intercom be just voice. It was interesting to see that if they choose in certain situations, it can be video. And I like that. I thought that was really cool. That sort of harkens to, like, what they do later on. A lot of the later shows, obviously, they get rid of the intercoms in the later shows, and they start having the badge, like, portable intercoms, which makes more sense. It's also a product of, you know, this show, remember, was made in the 1960s. Mobile phones were not invented for, like, another 15, 20 years, so the idea of portable communication devices hadn't actually been invented yet, other than radios. So, like... It makes sense that on a ship they would think the most high-tech thing they could do was intercoms. Later on, of course, they sort of take mobile technology and have the the badges. Now, we have sort of seen, even though I said there are no mobiles, the, the comm things that they take to the planets with them almost look like flip phones, which people love to point out. Sort of a mobile device, but in reality it was more supposed to be a sci-fi radio. And these were supposed to be like high-tech radios, but this was the first video call. This was the first proper, like, hey, we're doing mobile communications, and I thought that was cool. I did think it was interesting that, like, obviously they've added this in editing and post, and whoever the director was didn't tell Kirk to look at the screen, so when he's talking, it's kind of weird, because we can see Uhura's face, and she's very clearly visible talking to him, but he's, like, looking at the wall, like, on the other side of the room, not actually looking at the monitor. Now, I don't know if that's just Kirk being, like, a professional, or whether the director didn't know they were going to edit that screen in, so... But it just kind of comes off as a little bit weird that he's not looking at Uhura while she's looking at him. That could have been just a decision that some editor made later on, where he's like, hey, I can do this cool thing. But he didn't tell anyone beforehand and just said, I'm going to experiment with it. I don't know. But I thought it was cool, and I'm going to be paying attention to whether that comes up again in the original series, because I don't think it does. I really don't remember that being a thing. But anyway, there was one other moment where, when they were talking about the interrogation of the prisoner in the brig, they mentioned, we have interrogated him using truth drug. Which is something that I thought was weird, because we sort of hear about truth drug here and there throughout Star Trek, but... Most of the time, it doesn't seem to work on humans. Truth drugs, like, I think Cardassians have them later. And I think Romulans have something similar. But, like, it's not normally a Federation thing. I found it very interesting that 23rd century Federation apparently uses truth serum on their prisoners. I don't know. Apparently, it didn't give them much because the Orion was able to resist it and didn't give them any information on it. But, like, it's interesting that they tried. But anyway, 
Thanks for listening. I've been rambling on about this episode for, Jesus, nearly 50 minutes now. Uh, Thanks for coming by. Don't forget to check the email and uh, send me any questions or anything that you feel like. And don't forget to uh, listen to every episode. Enjoy the show and goodbye for now.